What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Why now? I mean, 2,000 years ago, that story happened. Amazing. Uh, awe-inspiring. Incredible story. Someone will watch it on the History Channel tonight. And, and great story. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me 2,000 years later? What does it mean that there were grave clothes still in the tomb when they got there? What do those grave clothes mean to you? What do they mean to me? And you know what they mean? They mean the very thing we just saw in that video. New life. He still gives new life today. He's the God of life and he gives life. He gives all the kinds of new things. He gives a new identity. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and recognize that wrath was your wrath on the cross and surrender your life to him, you die to that way of life, the old way of life, and you come and you get new life. And you get a new identity, you get a new family, you get to be part of a body of believers. You get a new name, they call you Christian. No, you're a follower of Christ. You get a new future, you get to be with God forever. You get new hope. But all of it together, it's new life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Unfortunately, not everyone experiences new life. And I don't know what God has in store for you as we open up the scriptures in just a moment, but I'll tell you, we've done two services already. We've had multiple people place their faith in Jesus Christ in both those services, which is a huge phrase. The scripture states that all of heaven rejoices when that happens. That might be God's plan for you right now, is that you would experience this new life yourself. For others, maybe you have this life and you're living in this life right now. This would be an encouragement to you, to be a challenge to you. Uh, for some, maybe you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you've gotten off path and God will use this to redirect you and get you back into right relationship with him. I don't know what God wants to do, but I hope that you'll be asking him as we turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. If you don't have a Bible, you might find it on your phone. There's an app called Version. Perhaps you have that or on your iPad. But if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And uh, Lord willing, time allowing, uh, we're going to make it through verse 12 this morning. And we're reading a very familiar Easter passage. In fact, if you've been to church on Easter before, perhaps you've heard this story, or if you read in reflection in your own time this week, perhaps you've read through these verses. But before we read it, I just want to remind you that we come, and it's Easter Sunday, and we're in a celebratory mood, and we're excited. The tomb was empty, and you should be. But as we enter into the text, I just want to ask you to think about it from these women's perspective for a moment. They're still living on Good Friday. And that was a dark day. Because when they saw Jesus... And think about it, it wasn't just that they had someone die, they saw him murdered in broad daylight. And he wasn't a religious figure, he wasn't a good example, he wasn't a moral leader, he wasn't some philosopher, that was their friend. That was their hope. Everything was placed on him. And they saw him murdered. And so when they come to the tomb, they're not expecting to see an empty tomb. They're not expecting to see a risen body. They're bringing spices. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 16, they're talking about how are they going to get the stone away from the tomb? And how are they going to get in there to anoint the dead body of their friend? And what happens, you and I both know, the expectations aren't met. Now, a lot of times we talk about unmet expectations, and, and some of you, you think about in your life, some of your greatest disappointments were unmet expectations. You know, marriage didn't give what you thought it would give. Or life hasn't become what you dreamed it would become. And a lot of times you think about being let down in those. Now, imagine from these women's perspective, they have no expectations at all except for to see a dead body. It's not that they're going to be let down, it's going to be the exact, exact opposite. But at this point, all their dreams have been shattered. They're in despair. They're discouraged. They're perhaps depressed. Look at what happens. So on the first day of the week, it's a Sunday, the week's beginning, it's a new week. Very early in the morning, the brand new day, very new time. The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you? Uh, While he was still with you in Galilee, do you remember this? And then they quote what Jesus had said. This is in red letters in my Bible. And Jesus said this multiple times. If you want to read it on your own, Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. It's in Matthew, Mark, and John. But verse 7 here, it says it. The Son of Man must be delivered of the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. <laughs> Doesn't that seem like something you'd remember? I mean, there's, you know, what do you, think about the things you forget. Like, I forget to get milk on my way home from work. I forget someone's birthday. Thank you for Facebook. You know, I forget, like, little things like that. It seems like if the most important person in your life, your leader, your Messiah, your Lord, your Master, your friend, said to you, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be crucified, pretty gruesome death, you'd remember that, and then I'm going to raise three days later, you'd remember that. Do you know why they didn't remember that? They had no category for this. And something like this had never happened before. So when Jesus said it, even though he said it very clearly and repeatedly throughout the Gospels, they didn't know what he was talking. Is this a metaphor? Like, what is he saying here? And they've been called you of little faith enough times. They don't, they don't always ask questions. And they didn't remember this because what's happening here is brand new. In fact, if you read back through all those verses, verses 1 through 8, you see that the passage is saturated with newness. It's a new day. It's the first day of the week. That's when we celebrate and we worship as believers. You know, it used to be that people would celebrate, they would worship on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And what happens is that shortly after that, because of the new thing that God was doing here in this passage, that believers started to worship on a new day. It happens in the book of Acts, which we'll be in next week, and we'd love to have you join us for that. It's the first day of the week. It's a new week. It's a new day. It's the morning time, the deep dawn before the sun's even come up. It's a new day, and what do we know about new days from Scripture? God's mercies are recycled every day, right? He improves upon them from the day before. No, they're new every day. God's mercies are new every day. There's new mercies, it's a new week, it's a new day, and God's doing a new thing, something he's never done before, never in human history. Did God ever put on flesh, come to earth and live a perfect life, but not to be an example, not to be a moral teacher, not to be some guy that we would like to aspire to be like someday, but so that when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for yours and for mine. And never before had the tomb been empty. Never before had he raised from the dead. Never before had any of this happened. It's all new. And why? So that he can give you new life. So he can give me new life, new hope, new future, new identity, new family, new life. It's all new. Which is great for us because we're very fascinated with the new, aren't we? Just as a society and as a culture, we love new things. Uh, there's always a new, whatever was new when you walked in here today, it probably won't be new when you leave. I'm sorry if you just bought an iPhone 8 and you thought you were on the cutting edge. It, it's going to be out. Like, that's just kind of what happens. And some of you today, I know that you'll, you'll go home in this afternoon, maybe hang out with fam family or have a special meal just to go home and just kind of veg on your own and watch some basketball. See who's going to be in the final four. And the temptation is not to pay attention to the commercials. I challenge you, pay attention today. And just notice how they leverage the new. There's always got to be a new thing. One of the commercials you'll perhaps see will be from Taco Bell. Uh, for those of you who don't know, last year Taco Bell came out with a, a product that has had a response unlike any they'd ever come out with before. The biggest product they ever had. It was called the Dorito Taco. And I said that in the last service. Somebody amened, by the way. <laughs> um, 
I'm not saying, I'm not promoting this. I, I actually have a philosophy on food that two good things don't necessarily equal a good thing. Okay, so they have Doritos, and they have tacos, and they put them together, and it hit the market. In the first 10 weeks, they sold 100 million of those tacos. That's a lot of tacos. For the whole year, 2012, they sold 375 million tacos. That's just over a million tacos a day, for those of you who are calculating that in your mind. I am not a restaurant guy. That's a lot of food. You would think, being the biggest hit they've ever had, you know, McDonald's couldn't even sell hamburgers that fast, okay? That's the biggest hit Taco Bell's ever had. You'd think they could ride that wave for a little while. That was in 2012, in March. That's so last year. Now they've come out with, that's not the commercial you'll see today, the Cool Ranch. See, now you want to amen. Now, now people were talking. <laughs> so the Cool Ranch tacos out now, and if you've seen the commercial, they do it like, duh. Like, we've been waiting for, how come you didn't come up with this? How did we possibly exist for this many thousands of years without this taco? you got to have the new one. They've been waiting. People are so hopeless and stuffing chips in their taco until they can get this taco because we want the new. And people leverage this, and, and you're aware of this. You've already seen this. Because so many products, they come out with this idea, the new and improved. Have you seen that? So many people do that. I was reading an article about it this week. Came across this picture, which really caught my attention. I've never had Diamond Shreddies. Seems like an incredibly boring product. <laughs> Do you see on the right, obviously, or on your left over here, you can see the old one, and it's been so improved, it's been put at an angle on this side over here. The new one improved. In this article that I read, it talked about how the U.S. government, what, what they'll do to require uh, a manufacturer to call something new and improved is just to make a slight change. And it doesn't even have to be to your advantage. What the manufacturer can do, for example, one of the things they gave as an example was that uh, if they were selling cereal, they could take a cereal and make the box a little bit bigger, and they could actually decrease the amount of cereal that's in it and still call it and promote it to you as new and improved. And see, you know you can get duped by the new and improved. We've probably all done it before. You buy the new Coke, and you're like, the old Coke was better, or whatever product you've bought, and it's the new thing. And you think about this. One of the scams that they use is they, maybe some of you have this at home and used it this morning. Uh, they'll put botanical ingredients in, like, shampoo. Have you seen that? New and improved with botanical ingredients. And what I read was that many companies, what they'll do is they'll take a huge vat of water, like 500-gallon thing of water, and they'll take some herbs and spices and put it in this boiling water, leave it in there for a little bit, pull it back out, and then they take that water and they drop it in the product before it goes off the assembly line. It's, new and it's, not, it's not changed, just in case you're wondering, but that's the new and improved product. And here's the sad reality, is that sometimes people try to pass off Christianity as if it's the new and improved life. Like, it's just a better version of you. It's now the religious version of you. Or it's the uh, not as sinful version of you. It's the moral version of you. It's the friendly version of you. It's the you with a new set of dreams. It's the you that doesn't curse. It's the you that stops smoking. It's the you that has a better marriage. It's the you that... That's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about a new and improved you. We're talking about new. Just philosophically think with me for a moment. New and improved doesn't even make sense. If something's improved, that implies it existed before. These two things are actually mutually exclusive from one another. Either it's new or it's improved. We're not talking about improved. We're talking about new life. That verse that Jad read at the beginning of the service, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone, if anyone's placed their faith in Christ, anyone's surrendered, you died to the old way of life, you're surrendered, you received the new, you received the forgiveness, you received the redemption, you're in the family. If anyone is in Christ, he is an improved creation. He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. New. 
And that new life is what Jesus promises and what we see through the resurrection he delivers. And that's our main and our only point today. It's a very simple message. We're going to walk back through the passage of the story here and see how this is true. But that Jesus promised and delivered new life. Jesus promises and delivers, and that's key. Both are true, because a lot of people make big promises. A lot of people can say big things. And Jesus said some huge things in Scripture. None was bigger than this. I will die, and on the third day I'll raise again, and he keeps it. He delivers. Jesus promises and he delivers new life. Think about it in this passage of Scripture, and go back in and try and enter the situation these women were in. One of the dangers sometimes is we think that they only existed in the story that we read here. A lot of times we'll make Bible characters kind of two-dimensional, Almost like they're cardboard cutouts of people. Like just for this, they're kind of a prop for this story here. Remember, these are real women. These people had real stories. They had dads, they had moms, they had brothers and sisters and husbands and friends in the community. They had their own hurts and pains and difficulties. And when someone dies, a lot of times that can bring out a lot of that stuff, can it? I know some of you are very young, but I would assume most of you have experienced loss before. You know when somebody dies what that's like? and you start to think through stuff, it brings back memories. Sometimes they're good memories. Sometimes it reminds you of past pain, things like abandonment, things like not measuring up, things like whatever. You fill in the blank with your story. And so that's where these women are at. They lost their friend. He was murdered in broad daylight. And you think through some of the things you said, some things you wish you had said. Some maybe wish they had sat at his feet more. Others, I wish I had just told him I loved him one more time. I wish I had never said, do you remember that one time? And, and that's the state of mind these women are in. And they're going to the tomb. And Mark tells us in Mark 16 that they're discussing who's going to roll away the stone. They don't have any chance at rolling away the stone. Uh, the way this scene would be would be a cave that would have an opening large enough for an adult human to walk into. And as like many caves, if you've ever been in a cave, they're dark and cold and moist and all those things. They place the body in there and they roll a wheel-like large stone in front of the tomb. And so they're discussing who's going to roll away the stone. And, and in Luke chapter 24, verse 1, they've got these spices and they just want to honor the dead body of their friend. Look what happens in verse 2. They found the stone rolled away. So they're already shocked. In verse 3, what they entered and they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus now you can think about being so amazed, bewildered, confused. What happened? Did someone steal the body? Where is he? Now, I don't know if you've been in a, a cave before. I have. Voluntarily, I will point out. Spelunking, I think they call it. But they're caving. They're dark. Uh, I wouldn't recommend hanging out in one in a long time, uh, for a long time. They've got bats in them. They're kind of creepy. In fact, the person we were with, they had us all turn the lights off. It gets so incredibly dark in there. Now, Think about that, and that's the situation they're in. Not only that, but they're expecting to see a dead body. I don't know if you hang out at cemeteries. If so, don't tell me. I think that's spooky. I don't go there either. So they're in a place that's already kind of creepy. You wouldn't want to spend a bunch of time. And they're expecting to see a dead body. The dead body is missing. Now, have you ever had somebody just kind of pop up on you? And they're there all of a sudden. They weren't there, and then they're there. I don't know. if you, I'm kind of a jumpy person, and my, our worship pastor knows this. He, he, he's not in the service this time. I'll tell you all about him. Um, but he, he knows this. Just kidding. Uh, he hides outside my door at our office so that when I walk out sometimes, I'll, I'll be, ah! you know, it kind of scares me. And uh, I think he, this week when he went to do it, he kind of got real low, and he said, I think you're going to punch me one time. And I thought, that is a good idea. Like that's, <laughs> now, now you're talking. But he, he does this. Now, can you imagine being in the setting these women are in, and then all of a sudden that happens? Now, 
Think about that, and then what they report becomes even more amazing to me. Look at the next verse. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, ah! you know, they're scared already. Two men, but then they give a fashion update. <laughs> and clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now, I, as I was reading that this week, I was thinking to myself, I would not, I mean, that wouldn't, I wouldn't even fathom what clothes they, I can just imagine going home. Shanna, uh, today I went to the tomb to find the body, and then I turned, and there was two men there. What were they wearing? <laughs> Skinny jeans? Like, I don't know. Like, Gap, Banana Republic? I wouldn't even fathom the idea of thinking to ask that question. But they get this fashion update. They say suddenly there's these two men, and listen to what they're wearing. They've got clothes to gleam like lightning. Can't get those at the Gap, by the way. The reason why these women say this, they're not fashionistas. These women are reporting this is a divine experience. Luke doesn't say it here, but in verse 23, if you jump down, if you have your own copy of the scriptures, you'll see he tells that these are angels. Matthew tells us these were heavenly beings. These were angels that were speaking. And you see it in the way that these women respond. Look at what they do. They fall face down to the ground in fright. In fright, they bow down, their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, and get this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? What a profound question. And as I prepared this message this week, this question really struck me because in essence what these guys are saying here is you're looking for life in the wrong place. And I think about for us, how often we look for life in all the wrong places. I think about for my own life, I think about uh, friends, uh, they go to this church or other people I've talked to, counseling sessions that I've had. And you think about all the things that we go to for life, places that were never meant to give life. You maybe even think of your own places. People oftentimes will share, that if I just could get other people's opinion, if I could get other people's approval. And so it's a lot of times it's different people. Sometimes it's people in general and it's vaguely, sometimes it's specific people. You know, we have men in this church who are still living, they're grown men, still living for the approval of their dad. And he's dead. Why do you look for life in the grave? You're looking for life in the wrong place. Some people, they look for life from performance. And that can be packaged and reshaped for lots of people in different ways. For some, it's like, climb the ladder. If I, could get, if I could just get to this position, then I'd be happy. If I could just get to this style of life, if I could have this level of financial freedom, if I could have this level of responsibility freedom, you're looking for life in the wrong place. If I could just be pretty enough, if I could just be skinny enough, if I could just, you're looking for life in the wrong place. If I just, the next vacation, the next mountain that I climb, the next adventure that I have, the next adrenaline situation, the next accomplishment, you're looking for life in the wrong place. C.S. Lewis who once said this, I, f I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Meditate on that for a moment. If I find in myself a, a, a desire, and we all have. You saw Sean Sherrod and his story. You, you've had it in your story. We've all had it. If we have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most likely, the most probable, the best explanation is you weren't made for this world. You were made for another place. You were created to crave something that nothing in this world can satisfy the craving of. No amount of food, no amount of money, no marriage, no job. Those things aren't bad. But when you're looking for life from them, they were never designed to give that. 
And we see people do it over and over again. I'm a huge football fan. I know it's basketball season right now, but I like football a lot. And I know a lot of people watch football. Some of you, maybe the only game you watch all year is the Super Bowl. Ever watch the pregame interviews? And they'll talk about these guys. Their whole life has been football since they were peewee playing football. They got, now they're at the pinnacle of their career, and, and they'll say that. Like, we live for this. Those are the kind of quotes you'll get. We live for this moment. This is what it's all about. My life has been totally dedicated to this. Then they win. Amazing. You know, champagne flying. Everybody's celebrating, throwing the towels around. It's all incredible. Did you watch after that? You ever watch after that? I love the offseason. Those of you who've played fantasy football with me, you know that. I love to trade and the wheel and deal and the free agents and all that stuff. Watch where the guys from the Super Bowl team go next. <laughs> They're not always looking for the best team. You know what they'll say? Got my ring. Now I've got to get my money. And then what happens? They get their money. Eventually they stop playing football. And what? Start the next business? Now get a new wife? Get a new experience? Got to do that? And follow some of their lives. That's what happens. In fact, it was Tom Brady who once said in a 60 Minutes quote, I feel like I've reached the pinnacle. Like he's married to a supermodel, been Super Bowl MVP multiple times. I think they've won three championships at that point. He says, but I just feel like there's something more. There is. We've all experienced that. We were designed to experience that. King Solomon says it like this. Talk about a guy who's the wisest man who ever lived and the wealthiest man in his day. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure, and he could have it all. All the women... All the castles, all the horses, all the livestock, all the money, all the jewels, all the stuff. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for my labor in that moment. But then look what he says next. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. See, these things, they promise life. They don't deliver. Jesus promises life too. In fact, if you go through the scriptures, you'll see continually through his life and his ministry, he was promising life. Uh, you see, you can go to John chapter 3 if you just do a survey of one of the gospels, just do the gospel of John. John chapter 3, uh, there's a uh, religious guy who comes to him. His name's Nicodemus. In fact, he's the most religious guy in the, at that time. He's called the teacher of Israel. So if anybody knows religion, it's this guy. Religion will not fill this void. And he comes to Jesus because there's still something missing in his life. And you know what Jesus says to him? He doesn't say you have the wrong belief system. He doesn't say you need a new religion. He doesn't say you need to think different, you need to behave different, you need to be more committed. You know what he tells him? You've got to be born again. You need new life. Interesting contrast, you go to the next chapter, there's a woman who comes to the well, and she's lived a promiscuous life. She's gone from relationship to relationship thinking that if she found the right man, if it, was just, it must be that I just haven't found the right one yet. I just got to find the right one. And she's gone from guy to guy and she hasn't been satisfied. You know what Jesus says? I'm the man. I'm the only one that will bring satisfaction because I'm life. In fact, he says it as explicitly as you can see. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, I am the life. And he says, no one goes to the other world that C.S. Lewis was talking about. No one goes to the Father. That's, a, that's what he's talking about. No one goes to the Father except for through me, Jesus Christ. He prays it in John chapter 17 before he leaves. And he's teaching people how to pray. And he's praying for people. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, now this is eternal life. Praying to the Father that they would know you. That they would know the one who's in that other world. Who created this world. Who created it all. Who holds it all together. Who designed them and put that desire in them. And they would know your son, Jesus Christ. Me, who you sent. John chapter 10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The way that it happens is we go through our lives believing those other lies that if I just got to this place, if I just had, if I was just skinny enough, if I just, and whatever they are, and then we get to the end of our life and we realize it was a chasing after the wind. We wasted our lives. It was stolen from us. But Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
That's his promise. He promises life. But you know what we see in our text today? He doesn't just promise, he delivers. And that's what the angels say to these women. Not only why do you look for life, why do you look for the living among the dead? But then verse 6, he's not here, he has risen. He's the God of life. And he can defeat death. Death cannot hold him. The grave can't contain him. Remember how he told you while he was still here? Now it makes sense because now we've seen it. He gives life. Not only does he promise life, he delivers on the promise. And what we see in the rest of this passage is the greatest evidence ever for the resurrection. Now, my job today is not to convince you that the resurrection happened. There are incredible evidences out there about the resurrection. In fact, if you think about it, uh, you think about if the resurrection were on trial, what would be the best way to prove that the resurrection was true? It's not an empty tomb. Someone could have stolen the body. Something could have happened here. But what is the greatest proof? Well, think about court cases now that are happening. I've shared with you before. I'm, I'm kind of a news junkie, and so keep up with the different cases that are happening, different things that are happening. One that's somewhat intriguing to me is the Oscar Pistorius case. I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but he's a sprinter from South Africa, and uh, he's uh, an amputee. He has no legs. And so he was in the Olympics. He ran the 400 meters, which is a race that I love too. And so he was real intriguing. I mean, you want this guy to win. Like You want this guy to You're just cheering for him. But then he had this situation where he killed his supermodel girlfriend, and he claims it was an accident. Other people claim it was cold-blooded murder. Uh, no one knows. If there was one eyewitness, it would be an open shut case. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the Bible? He says there are over 500 eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. To prove it is not my job. It's indisputable amount of proof. The greatest evidence isn't that there was an eyewitness. Do you know what the greatest evidence is? Those who witnessed it were forever changed. The greatest witness, the greatest evidence, the greatest proof of the resurrection is a changed life. It's what you saw in the video uh, before the, the sermon. It's what we see in this text. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things. You'd have to talk about something like this, right? They told all these things to the eleven and the others. And I love that God points out to us who it is that's telling this. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others. Interesting that it's women. Okay, and not being sexist or anything like that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us in our culture. A woman's testimony is the same as a man's testimony. And that wasn't true then. A woman's testimony didn't count in court. But God gets beyond those gender barriers, and he tells the story different than the way we tell it. If the church were making this up, if Luke were making this up, he wouldn't have had Mary and Joanna and the other Mary. Those wouldn't have been the witnesses. And you think the disciples wouldn't believe? They don't believe either when this first happens. But you know who these people are that God's using? He's using people that have been changed. Mary Magdalene, she's got an interesting story. There's a lot of legend about her. There's a lot of stuff that's out there. You can find some fiction things that are out there uh, that are incredibly interesting but don't have any historical evidence behind them. What we know to be true is what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. That at one time, this was a woman who had seven demons. Can you imagine what that's like? Seven demons. Like, we've had some pain and some hurt. But can you imagine one demon for a moment? Like, why would you need seven? Like, that's what I, like, how bad is one? I mean, you read in the scriptures and you see, like, the boy that's demon-possessed in the scriptures and he's being thrown in the water and he's thrown in the fire. He's, the demons are trying to destroy him. That's their job, steal, kill, destroy. You see the man who's got a legion of demons, Jesus cast them out into the pigs. 
totally under control. I believe the reason why she has seven demons here is because seven's the number of completion. She's completely controlled and possessed. Can you imagine having absolutely no control and having the accuser have the control, the lies being told, all the stuff going on in your life that we know is true of the enemy, the father of lies? Talk about anxiety. Talk about difficulty, and she's rescued from that. And she's given new life. And that's all we know about her historically, other than at the end of the Gospels, she's the one who lingers at the cross. Because I found that people have been changed by Jesus or people that like to hang around with Jesus. It's one of the reasons why some people are drawn to our church is they know that people's lives are changed and then people want to hang out with other people whose lives have been changed. Somebody's marriage is miraculously restored. Then they want to be around other people who Jesus has done that in their marriage because it's encouraging. It's like hanging around with Jesus. Yeah, men in our church they slept with prostitutes and thought God could never love them. But then realize God's love and what it really is. And then they hang around and then they tell other people. And those people, like, there's, there's people hang around like that? They want to hang around with Jesus. She lingered at the cross. And then she's the first witness of the resurrection, changed life. And then who does she tell? She tells people like Peter. Peter, the guy, the last time that Peter saw Jesus alive, he was looking him in the eye and saying, I never knew that man, and calling down curses from heaven. And he gets told the story along with the other apostles. And look at what it says in verse 11. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. What you're saying doesn't even make sense. You couldn't even roll away the stone. You're talking about the stones all rolled away. Doesn't even make sense. There's no body in there. That doesn't make sense. Do you know what doesn't make sense? Doesn't make sense to me. God's love. Why does He love me? Why does He love you? You think about love in general, and how does love usually work? Whether it's a brother and sister, or a husband and wife, a boyfriend girlfriend, whatever you see love in your life, isn't love usually transactional? Like, I love you because of what you do for me. You make me feel good. You look nice. You do these certain things for me. You, whatever it is, it's kind of, as long as you do your role, I'll do mine. And that's how love, a lot of times we experience love. Or someone loves you because of what you do for them. Like, you're on the other end of the, you meet some need. You've got some money for them or some talent that benefits their life or some position or some, being around you does something for them. God's love isn't like that at all. If you think about, think about for a minute who God is. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he hates sin. What do we have to offer? (laughs) A bunch of that. Sin. And you might think, well, I don't have that much. I mean, compared to somebody else, maybe your sin doesn't look that bad. He hates all of it. He can't have it in his presence. But he loves you? How does that, that doesn't make sense. Think about about who he is. He's self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He existed before there ever was. Like kids ask me the question, who created God? No one. Explain that. You can't. It doesn't make sense. He's just, he's there. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. You don't bring anything to the table. You don't have anything. He didn't pick you because you were attractive. He didn't pick you because your resources. He didn't pick you because of your talents. He didn't pick you because you had less sin than the next guy. He didn't pick you because of any of that. He just wanted you. That makes sense. And I can talk about it all day long. And it won't make any more sense to you. You have to experience it for yourself. And that's what happened with Peter here. So that doesn't make any sense. What yours, this story doesn't make any sense. But then verse 12. Peter, however, contrast, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. He's got to experience it for himself. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. It doesn't say that he has faith here. It says he went away wondering. Peter's at a crossroads now. You could call it a crisis of faith. He's at a, a situation where he's got a decision that needs to be made, a point of decision. You can call it all kinds of different things. 
But the empty tomb doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. It proves that the body's not there. And so he's asking himself the same question we need to be asking ourselves. What does this mean? Not the facts of the story. He checked out. Mary's story checked out. All the facts were there. But what does it mean? And what does it mean to me? What does it mean that there's linen there? What does it mean that there's grave clothes there? What does this mean? Why? And we don't have time today, but if you continue to go through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and if you read Mark, and if you read Matthew, and if you read John, and if you read the book of Acts, which we'll be back in, what you see is that Jesus appeared to Peter on multiple occasions. And what you see in Peter is he's radically changed. He's a changed man. The Peter that we see up until this passage versus the Peter that we see after this passage in the book of Acts is a totally different, not a new and improved Peter, a new Peter. Not a coward, a man with incredible courage. Not a man who's trying to find satisfaction by who he's hanging around with and what status he gets and the success of his fishing business and if he could just be whatever. He's totally satisfied in Christ. And he wants other people to know this, what's been, ha- what's been given to him, this new life, this new identity, this new family, this new hope, this new future, this new life. And so he boldly proclaims to the very people that he was afraid of, the very people that killed Jesus, the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 2, he says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what he's saying? You can have what I have, because it's not about what happened to me. It's not about me. It's about the one who did it. And he wants to give it to you. It's a picture of the gospel. And you know, and I know, once God does this for you, you have to talk about it. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to become a pastor. You know, I didn't have like a divine moment of like, you have to be in ministry. You know what happened with me? I was an international business major. Uh, I trusted Christ about a year before, and I said, God, I will do anything you want me to do, but I'm not going to Christian college, and I'm not going to go into full-time vocational ministry. Otherwise, I surrender all, but these two things, right? So, hold those off. Don't do that, okay? Unless you really want to go into ministry, I don't, whatever. Don't do that. God's sovereign. He's in control and he has a sense of humor, apparently. And you know what happened? You know how it happened for me? I didn't want to study business calculus. <laughs> I didn't want to study, I was an international business major, and I switched to psychology. And then I was like, wow, we're all messed up as people. Like, I don't want to study people. I wanted to study the Bible, and I wanted to tell people about Jesus. Do you know why? Because he had changed me, and I just wanted them to know. Not just that you changed me, but they could change them. And that's where Peter was at. And that's where some of you, you go to your workplace. And at your corporate office, whether it's IBM or John Deere or Cisco or different places, you tell the people in your office about Jesus because of what he's done for you. And that's why you do it, because he's changed you. And some of you, you stay at home with the kids and you tell the kids about Jesus. And you tell the other moms about Jesus. And, and then some of you, you've got a paper route and you tell your customers about Jesus. And some of you have clients, you're a lawyer, you've got patients, you're a doctor. And you tell them about Jesus. You know why? Because he's changed you. And that's what happened with Peter. It's like, you realize that you can have the same thing? It wasn't about me? It wasn't what I brought to the table? In fact, what I brought to the table is pretty bad. But he loves you. He picked you. It's adoption. Which I love adoption. It's such a wonderful picture of the gospel. Because he picked us. He wanted us. Not because of what we brought. Because he wanted to provide for us. A new family. A new future. A new identity. A new name. A new life. I was reading a story about adoption this week from a book, uh, Orphan Justice, which I recommend you check it out. But what ends up happening in the story is the author has adopted two children. He tells the story of adopting the second child. The first child he had already adopted uh, was a young boy named James. He was six years old at the time of the story. He was hearing impaired. He was deaf. He, he could not hear, which becomes relevant in, in a moment in the story. Because if you've ever spoken to someone who's deaf before, they don't hear the way that we pronounce everything. 
And so the way they say stuff is just they read it and they think the way that it should sound. So they say that, and it sounds sometimes like broken English and can always put all those things together. James was six years old and hearing impaired, and they had just adopted a little girl, four years old, from China. And for those of you who are familiar with adoption, you know that that can take some time. And he tells the story about the last several days of that. He said, and we went to China and did the paperwork and the court hearings and all that type of stuff. And he said, and we got on a plane, and 27 hours later, we were pulling into our house, and it was like a dream was realized. But mostly for the little girl, Shali. And the reason why was because up until that point, her dream of a family was a crowded orphanage. Now she's got a new name. She's got a new hope, new identity, new future, new life. But no one got it quite like James. James, the six-year-old son, uh, dad said, grabbed a hold of his sister, four years old, and made a beeline right to her bedroom and drug her behind, got in the bedroom, and with the best words that he possibly could was trying to explain, this is your room. And finally he just said, yours, yours. And then he started to go to the closet and he grabbed shoes out of the closet one by one and he placed them at his little sister's feet and he'd say one by one, yours, yours. And he grabbed the clothes out of the closet and started piling up clothes. He said, yours, and grabbing toys and teddy bears. He said, as a dad, he said, eventually I'm just watching. There's this four-year-old girl. She's got this mound of stuff all around her. And he said, and I'm watching my son, James, dance around the room like a, a man who just discovered gold. <laughs> and he's just saying this song over, yours, yours, like it's all yours. And he said, then I realized I was watching the gospel. He said, but James saw it through different eyes than the rest of us. He said, my wife and I are just thinking about how to get food on the table and get all the stuff in the house. And he's showing, this is what happened to me. You get a new life. You get a new family. You get a new identity. You get a new name, new hope, new future, new life. And that's what Peter goes on to do. That's what I'm saying to you today. It'll all be yours. New family, become part of the body of Christ. New name, you get called a Christian, a Christ follower. New identity, you become a son or daughter, the creator of the universe, the one who put that very hunger in your soul for him. New hope, new future, future with him forever. All of it, it's a new life. And that new life can be yours. His forgiveness can be yours. His love can be yours. His grace can be yours. A new life can be yours. What has to happen is you have to die to the old life. You have to stop. Stop trying to go to the job, the marriage, the money, the experience. The, you fill in the blank. Stop going to those things for life and turn to Jesus Christ. It's called repentance in the Bible. Or you stop going after your way of life and you turn and you accept his. And some of you, that's what you need to do today is receive Jesus Christ to be your savior, to receive that new life and it can all be yours. And I'm just offering it to you. He's changed my life. He's changed the lives of many people. He changed the life of Sean, Kimberly. He can change your life today. It can be yours. And what you have to do is what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 20. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Does it just mean say his name? Does it mean to say some magical prayer? Does it mean to do some? No, it doesn't mean that. That means that you're not calling that other stuff Lord anymore, but Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's master. You're turning from that old way of life and turning to him, and he takes you and he gives you a new life, not an improved version of the old one, a new life. And if you want a new life today, you can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And what we're going to do right now is we're just going to all bow our heads and close our eyes, and I'm going to pray a prayer. And uh, when I pray this prayer, if you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you're right here where I'm at live, whether you're across the hall in Theater 14, or whether you're watching online or listening to an MP3 or whatever it is, will you pray this prayer with me? And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to pray. I'm not trying to confuse you or trick you or anything like that. I'm just going to pray and acknowledge sin before God. We're all sinners. We're, none of us are perfect. Acknowledge your sin before God. I'm going to pray that. 
And I'm going to thank him for his death. I'm going to thank him for his resurrection. And I want to ask him to give you life. And if you want to pray that prayer, you want to receive new life, you want to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved, will you pray this prayer with me? With everybody with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And just pray these words into your seat as I pray them out loud. Dear God, I acknowledge my sin before you. I know that I sin. And you may even in your heart just to him acknowledge specific sin that you feel convicted of, that you feel guilty of. But God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for that sin. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that your son Jesus didn't stay dead, but that he rose. Thank you for offering new life. And today I want to receive that new life. Today I want to ask your son Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Today I turn from all the other things I was going to for life to your son Jesus. Now if you just prayed that prayer, I I want to ask you if you wouldn't mind raising your hand. I'm going to count to three in just a moment. When I count to three, would you just pop your hand up in the air and acknowledge that you just prayed that prayer with me? Just one, two, three. Would you pop your hand up? I see multiple hands going up. You can raise your hand in Theater 14 too. In fact, you can raise your hand if you're watching online. It's an acknowledgement to the Lord. I praise God for that. Now, if you're, you're here today uh, with us at Southbridge, then I just ask, if you did just raise your hand, would you do me one favor? Before you leave today, would you fill out on your connection card? There's a card that's inside your worship program. We call it the connection card. Would you fill it on, the, on there, just your name, whatever information you feel comfortable giving us, and just check that today you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you... Did that is such a wonderful encouragement to us. We've got people that have been praying for you all week. We've got people that have come, they've set up, done all kinds of things, and that's why. They wanted, to, they wanted you to have that new life. And so would you just encourage them, let them know that that's true, and we want to pray for you as well after that. I'm going to pray for all of us believers and new believers. We had multiple people raise their hand, acknowledge, trusting Christ as believers. We rejoice in that. Father God, we come before you as Luke 15. All of heaven rejoices, and we rejoice in that. I pray that there be people that have new life all over this city today and all kinds of different churches and all, all the ones that would preach the good news of your gospel that Jesus offers life, that he's risen, that he's risen indeed and therefore we have victory. And you don't just want to make us more moral or make us more friendly but you want to give us new life and we rejoice in that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.